you would turn in your Bibles once again to the Gospel of John. That is the fourth book of the New Testament. It's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. When you reach Matthew, you've reached the New Testament, and then you go through the other Gospels to find John. We are once again in the fourth chapter of this Gospel. We have been spending some time here in this very significant chapter as Jesus speaks with a Samaritan woman at the well. This is the third portion of this text that we will see, and the final version with this woman. And then we will continue on in the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5 to see Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, expand. But for now, let us pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, Lord, we pray that your word would take root within our being. That as we hear the words of our Savior, as we study your word, we would become more and more like Jesus. We would love what He loves and seek what He seeks. And we would know that we will never be the same after meeting Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
One of the most challenging things about the Christian life is evangelism, witnessing to others. We know that we ought to do it, but there is something intimidating about witnessing. Witnessing can be awkward. It can be hostile. It can make you feel like a failure. But today's passage is one of the most important in the Bible about evangelism. Just like last week was one of the most important passages on worship. It comes to us from the lips of our Savior. Last week we were challenged to think God's thoughts instead of our own about worship. So also this week we are challenged to think God's thoughts about witnessing and evangelism rather than our own. We need to see that evangelism is not as complex as we fear it is. We need to see that evangelism doesn't all depend on us. And we can have success if we trust the Lord. So this morning I'd like us to see three things about witness. You have noticed that the last three sermons in this series, including this one, there is a key word that begins with W. First, we had water as Jesus approached the Samaritan woman and told her he had living water to give her. Then last week we saw the key word was worship, as Jesus talked about proper worship, true worship that the Father seeks. And now this morning we look at witness. And so the first thing we see is that witness is simple. Simple witness. Witness is not as hard or complex as we would make it out to be. The second thing we see is that witness is God-centered. It is a God-centered witness that we are to have. And then thirdly, we see a successful witness. Although I think not perhaps successful in the way that we would predict. It's successful in that God accomplishes His will. A simple witness, a God-centered witness and a successful witness. Let's start then by looking at this simple witness of this woman. This is the third part of chapter 4. Jesus has previously met this woman at the well. Remember that she is a woman who is shunned, avoided by her community. But Jesus confronts her with her need. He tells her she needs living water, that she needs to be changed. And He makes that clear when she begins asking him about spiritual things. Now she may, you recall, be asking him about spiritual things, about worship, as a distraction, a diversion. She doesn't want to have a conversation about her home and family life. But Jesus knew this was coming. And he uses that discussion to continue going after her heart. He tells her that the Father is the one who is seeking worshipers. And that she can be one of those worshipers. He then ends with a marvelous declaration in verse 26. He says, I who speak to you am he. That is, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. The one you are looking for is right in front of you. And it's at this point, in verse 27, that the disciples come back. Now, this is an awkward moment. The disciples come and they see Jesus talking to this woman. And rabbis aren't supposed to be talking to women. In the days of the New Testament, women weren't supposed to do theology. 
They weren't supposed to be readers of their Bibles and have questions. But here the disciples come back and here is Jesus speaking to not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman in the heat of the day by herself. They're standing around awkwardly. They're waiting because they can't talk openly with Jesus. John tells us, no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? It's just this sort of awkward moment. Maybe you've experienced this. When you're standing in a group and you're, you're waiting to move on, you're waiting for someone to leave, and what you want to do is to say, go away. But you can't in polite conversation. So you just sort of wait and look at the sky and look at the floor until they get the hint and they go off. That's what the disciples are doing here. They want to get on with business. They can't wait for this woman to leave. They don't know what's been going on. They don't know the change that's happened. They don't know that this is the whole reason why they're here, is that Jesus could have this conversation. So she, oblivious to their thoughts, leaves. We see this in verse 28. The woman left her water jar and went away into town to talk to the people. She leaves, and she leaves with a purpose. She leaves behind her water jar. Now, this is an important detail. It's the kind of detail that only John would be able to give to us because he's an eyewitness to this event. And it's significant that she leaves it behind in two ways. First, the jar was the reason she came here in the first place. She came to get water. She and those who are with her need water. She needs to fill it up and go on to continue life. This is an important thing she has. But second, this jar became a symbol of her broken life. That's what Jesus has been talking to her about. She wants to talk about water in a well and filling it up with a jar. And Jesus says, that's not the kind of water you need. I know your need, and you need living water. Water so that you won't have to thirst again. And so, this is a woman who had tried to find hope and meaning in men. In the middle of a life that was hard and lonely. But she couldn't find meaning. And Jesus told her that her hope was in him. He had the living water. He had life for her. He brought hope. And now she realizes that everything is different. What areas of life do you struggle with? Relationships? Finding your place in the world? Worrying about the future? Are you looking at them in the light of who Jesus is? Because Jesus puts life in perspective. Believing in Jesus does not make your life perfectly instantly. But it does give you real hope because we see our life in light of who Jesus is. And so what does this woman do? This is where we can take instruction. The woman leaves behind this symbol of her own old life and she goes to tell others about who Jesus is. Now this is really unexpected. Remember that this woman has been shunned by this community. They avoid her. They are not her friends. It's not as if she is running off to tell her best friends in all of the world what's just happened. These are the people she's been trying to avoid. It's why she's at the well in the middle of the day. 
But she has to tell them about Jesus. She has to tell them about this person she's met, and she wastes no time at all. Now maybe this reminds you of when you first heard about Jesus. That everything was so new to you, and you couldn't believe that you didn't know that before. And then you couldn't believe that everyone didn't know about Jesus, and everyone should know about Jesus. And you became eager and earnest to tell others what you had learned, what you had heard, so that they would know also. That's what she's doing here. But I want you to remember, this woman does not have a theology degree. She knows almost nothing. She doesn't even have a whole Bible at her disposal. Remember, her people only think the first five books of the Bible are the Bible. She doesn't have any training. She's been with Jesus just a short period of time, but she does know Jesus. And she shares Jesus with others. Do you see her question? Can this be the Christ? Now, even that question is interesting. Because it's phrased with a sense of doubt. This is not the kind of question that expects a yes answer. In the original Greek, there's a bit of hesitation and doubt about the answer. She's hopeful, but is hoping to be reassured. She's going to others. She wants them to meet Jesus and see if Jesus has the same effect on them that he has on her. She knows that Jesus is the one they have to see. That's why she says, come, see. Now that language should sound very familiar to you by now. Because we've seen it before. We've heard it before. It's the great invitation to meet Jesus. Jesus said it to the Samaritan woman in verse 16 of this chapter. He told her to go get her husband and then come and be here with him. It's what Jesus said to John and Andrew when they said, where are you staying? Where are you going? He said, come, see. It's what Andrew said to Peter when he wanted him to meet Jesus. He said, we have found the Messiah. Come, see. Now, this is so simple. It's not an advanced class in apologetics. It's come, meet Jesus. That's what the Bible emphasizes. Throughout the Bible, we see this. In the prophet Isaiah, in the first chapter, Isaiah says, Come, let us reason with the Lord. Let us come to the Lord. In chapter 55, Isaiah tells us to come. You who are thirsty and hungry and buy, drink and food with no money, without price. Come and see. And then, of course, the Bible ends on this high note. In the last book, the book of Revelation, the very last chapter, chapter 22, the Spirit and the Bride say, guess what? Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is the natural response of someone who has experienced the supernatural work of God in Christ. Is this your response? If you are intimidated at sharing your faith, remember this. 
All you need to do is to tell others to come to Jesus. Start by introducing them to the Savior. It's really that simple. It really is. You know, they've done study after study after study. And they asked unbelievers, what would it take for them to come to church? And it doesn't mean that they needed to have someone who could recite large portions of the Bible to them, or someone who had a perfect life, or someone who had advanced degrees. The overwhelming response of unbelievers to that question is, I would go to church if someone personally invited me and brought me to their church and sat in the pew with me. That's all it takes. You can say, come to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your fellow students, and all you need to do is meet them in the parking lot so they're not left wandering in, not knowing what's going on, not knowing where to go, bringing them in and sitting with them. And if I could put it this way, I'll do the rest. I'll read the Bible, I'll preach the Bible. You don't have to memorize the Bible. That's sort of my thing. But you see, I don't work where you work. I don't go to school where you go to school. I can't tell those people to come. You have to. But she not only tells them who Jesus is, she tells them what Jesus did for her. Now, this makes sense because whenever someone meets Jesus, they are changed. So she says, this man told me all that I ever did. Now, this is very significant because it highlights her sin and her broken life. She would have been used to trying to hide that. Not letting people know her past. But now after meeting Jesus, she speaks openly about it. Why? Because it shows how wonderful Jesus is. That's why. She's saying, this man knows everything about me. And he still talked with me. And he still helped me. And he still cared for me. This is an important aspect of witnessing. It does not focus on how great you are or what you have done or how able you are. There should not be a lot of I in your testimony. The exception is when you talk about how lost you were, how great your need was, and how Jesus met you. Her embarrassment had become glory in Jesus. You don't need to run and hide after you meet Jesus. She does the exact opposite. She runs to those who judged her. And she says, Jesus knows all about that. And he forgave me. And he loved me. And he can do that for you, is what she says. You don't need to tell me all of your deepest, darkest sins. But you do need to know <coughs> that Jesus can handle those sins. Nothing is too much for Jesus. And do you see the effect that this had? Look at verse 30. They went out of the town and were coming to him. This woman was a person they didn't want to be around, that they had shunned. And now they're following her. They're running after her to meet this Jesus. They have to meet this Jesus who has done such incredible things. Now, your story does not need to be as dramatic as hers. I actually hope it's not. Many of you have grown up in the church. 
you don't have a dramatic conversion story. But that doesn't mean you don't have a Jesus story. Because you have sins that need to be forgiven. You have pride. You have self-centeredness. You have laziness. You have anger. If there is any good in you, it is a result of meeting Jesus. You could tell others about that. It really is that simple. Don't be intimidated. Don't overcomplicate things. Tell others who Jesus is and what he's done. Now to a second point, more briefly. While this is going on, there's kind of a split screen action. In verse 37, we see that the, or excuse me, in verse 31, the disciples are now speaking with Jesus. On the one hand, we have all of this going on with the Samaritan woman and the Samaritans. And now here, we see Jesus and his disciples. And these events make up another important point. It's that our witness must be God-centered. Now, do you see what Jesus' disciples are preoccupied with? They went into town to get food. And they missed most of this encounter. They don't even really know what went on. They see this woman run off, likely with excitement and joy, a spring in her step, leaving her water jar behind, and they want to get back to the everyday. Let's have lunch. Do you have something to eat? And Jesus answers them the way he so often does in verse 32. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Jesus doesn't need their food. Why? Because he is thrilled about what has happened. Now that may sound odd to your ears. Why would Jesus be excited about evangelism? After all, he is Jesus. Why would he be excited about evangelism? But it shouldn't surprise us that that excites Jesus. Because saving sinners is exactly what Jesus came to do. He was hungry and tired and thirsty, but not now. He is reinvigorated. Have you had that experience? Where you're occupied doing something that you're passionate about, that you love, that's important to you? And someone comes up to you and says, when was the last time you ate? And you say, I, I don't know. They say, you know, it's past dinner time. Did you have lunch? No, no, I don't think so. How about breakfast? Well, I had a cup of coffee when I got up. No, well, you need to eat something. It's been all day. You get just pouring yourself into something. You're so preoccupied with it. That's what Jesus is saying here. And their response is to miss it all. Look with me at verse 34. They say, well, who brought this guy food? We went into town to get food. Now he doesn't want to eat. Somebody must have brought him food on a sly. Who brought Jesus food? Now, does that sound familiar? It's almost exactly, with a little bit of difference, the woman's first reaction to Jesus. You know, how are you going to get that water? You talk about living water, but where's your bucket? You see, they're totally focused on the here and the now. They're going to miss it. So Jesus has to explain it to them. Aren't you so glad for Jesus' patience? Not just to them, but to hard-headed folks like you and me. In verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish 
the work. He says, my passion is to do the Father's will. And that made him forget all about being thirsty and hungry. Jesus is telling them and us to prioritize the will and work of God. Not our own desires. Not our own work. That's what evangelism is. Realizing that life is not about focusing on me. It's looking to bring others to Jesus. Now the irony here is at this point, the Samaritan woman understands better than Jesus' disciples. She's been with Jesus for an afternoon. And she gets what's going on here, that God is in control. And Jesus has to explain this to his disciples by means of a parable. He says in verse 35, Do you not say, so this is a, a key, that this is something that's a common saying that everybody knows. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now he's talking here about the ordinary course of sowing and reaping. And this is what happens. Now I've never been a farmer, but I do like to eat. And so I have to have some understanding of how food gets to me. And when farmers farm, what they do is they first plant. And you may not realize this, but you don't plant crops and then they spring up the next day. You have to wait about four months for the crops to grow, and then they're harvested, and then you can partake of them. That's the ordinary course of life. But Jesus says, that's not the case now. Throw out of your mind ordinary life, disciples. What's going on now is unique and distinct. I'm here with you, is what he's saying. Everything has changed. What you wouldn't expect is what's happening right now. You think everything needs to go according to the ordinary, normal course of events. But he says, look, the fields are white with harvest. Now, we don't know, but one of the things that historians tell us is that this area of Palestine was known for the growing of crops, specifically wheat. And as that grows up, as the ears grow up, you can see them. And you see the white of the tops of them, and that's when you know that the harvest is upon you. So Jesus could have even been pointing to the field and saying, Look, the fields are white with harvest. But he could have been saying something else too, because remember what else is happening here. You've got this whole group of Samaritans, the whole town is running to see Jesus. And we also know from historical accounts, and even from current life in this area, that the people of this area tend to dress in clothing or robes of guess what color? White. And so he could be pointing at them and saying, look, the fields are white for harvest. Look, you're in the ministry with me. You're following me around. You're listening with me to me. You know that I'm on a mission. Here it is before your very eyes. It's ready for harvest time right now. How can that be? Don't we have to wait four months, Jesus? Don't we have to let this woman go to Bible school and get an apologetics degree and then memorize parts of the Bible and then maybe she'll be equipped to go and tell other people about Jesus? No, 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 Jesus says. The reaper is overtaking the sower. 
This isn't ordinary course here. God is in control of what's going on. God is at work. It's not our efforts. It's not this woman's efforts. It's God's work. He is in control. Look, Jesus says, you can reap right now. You haven't sowed anything. But you better get ready to reap. Because the harvest is coming in. This is important for us to remember. To know that God is in control means that evangelism is not about us. Sometimes we're sowers and we don't see the fruit that others reap. Perhaps two of the most famous sowers in all of the history of the church are William Carey and the China Inland Mission. Carey went to India to spread the good news of the gospel. And those that were around him said, no, you don't need to do that. If God wants to save those people, he'll do it without you. And Carrie said, maybe he wants to use me. I'm going. And he went, and for seven years he saw barely any converts, maybe a handful. But then, what happened? The harvest came afterwards, and others reaped what Carrie had sown. Even more so, the China Inland Mission. That mission work in China, it was a failure. It was a flop. If you invested missionary dollars in that, you were not getting good reports that said dozens, hundreds, thousands are being converted. No, you'd get, well, we talked to a couple of people about Jesus. A few people didn't throw stones at us. I think we maybe have someone who's ready to make a profession of faith. But what happened afterwards? God brought the harvest to others and they reaped. And now in China, there are more Christians than in any other country on the globe. You see, God chooses who sows. He chooses who reaps. That takes all of the pressure off of evangelism. It's not up to you. When you tell someone about Jesus, it's not up to you to get a profession of faith out of them in the first five minutes. You may have to sow for year upon year upon year upon year, and you may never reap. Someone else may reap. But you don't stop sowing. You don't stop telling people about Jesus. Well, there's a third thing that we see. We see the success of this witness. Now, we may be tempted to see success in numbers. After all, this revival in Samaria started with one woman, and now we have a whole town coming to talk to Jesus. This is a revival. This is wonderful. They all believed because this woman's testimony pointed them to Jesus. She told them who Jesus was and what he had done for her, and kapow! Here they come. That's what's going on here. But there is a greater, deeper indication of success that goes beyond the numbers. They did come because of what she said. They did come in great numbers. The disciples must have been shocked. Here we are, we go out for lunch, and a whole town is converted. But what they see, these Samaritan people, is that they were changed like the woman was changed. Do you see what they did as a result 
of meeting Jesus? Look with me at verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. You see, they're not focused on life benefits. They are not focused on a changed community. They simply want to have Jesus be with them. This is important and it is remarkable. Because so often our evangelism stresses everything else. Believe in Jesus and your marriage will be better. Your kids will behave. Your work will be more fulfilling. Believe in Jesus and he will transform your culture. He will bring justice and equity. He will change the face of the earth. But what's important to them? Being with Jesus. Jesus stayed with them for two days. I imagine they would have wanted it to be longer. They wanted to learn from Jesus. We see this in verse 41. Many more believed because they heard him. They knew they were changed. But they also knew it was Jesus who had done the changing. This was just the beginning. And this is just as true today. You may say, but pastor, we can't sit here and have a conversation with Jesus. Well, yes, you can. Open your copy of God's word. Jesus will speak to you. The Father will speak to you. The Spirit will speak to you. And so successful evangelism means people are changed and they want to be with Jesus and they want to learn from Jesus and they are further changed by Jesus. That's successful evangelism. Give me a dozen disciples who want to learn from Jesus and be with Jesus over a thousand people that will make a profession of faith and never think about it again. You see, that's a success here. Do you think about Jesus in this way? Do you have a holy dissatisfaction about where you are right now? Do you want Jesus to make you more and more into his image? Do you want not just to spend the minimum time with Jesus? but as much as you can. I pray that you never have enough of Jesus. That you long for more and more of Jesus. More worship, more prayer, more reading of your Bible. I pray that you want to be with Jesus. And there's a final thing that shows the success of this witness. More witness. They wanted to tell others. They make this point to the woman. They say, you told us, now we see it for ourselves. We know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now that means they know they have to tell others. They have to tell even as they were told. Because there's only one Savior of the world. They see that now. They know that, that they have been told. But the whole world needs Jesus. And so they need to tell others about Jesus. There's nowhere else to go. They need to bring others to Jesus. And this is what drives us as believers. We know our need. We know only Jesus meets that need. So we know others need Jesus too.
Evangelism is hard. It's scary. When you talk to others about Jesus, you are vulnerable. You have to tell them what he's done for you, and that doesn't allow you to present yourself as a perfect person. We like to be seen as altogether strong, smart. But the truth is, we're not. Jesus is the one we need. And others need him too. You see, evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Don't be intimidated by evangelism. This woman was not. She didn't overthink it. She knew she needed to tell others who Jesus was and what he had done for her. You can do the same. And then leave the rest to God. Let's pray.